Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike G. And today we got a special guest on the podcast, Lisa Jaster, one of the first female Army Ranger School graduates. She's actually the first Army Reserve officer female graduates to ever graduate Ranger School, a class of 19 females that started only three actually finished from that class. A really interesting conversation that we had and a really inspiring conversation. I mean, not just because she's the first female uh, Ranger School graduate from the Army Reserves, but the fact that she's a person, a human being, a soldier, um, a leader who decided to go against the grain, to make history, to actually do something to become a better leader in person, and that she's using that experience to help others. And I'm so excited for you guys to hear this podcast. But yeah, catching up with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lisa Jaster. Thanks so much for uh, tuning into the podcast. Hey, if you ha- if you guys haven't heard yet, we're actually sponsored. This is a podcast that's now sponsored by Black Rifle Coffee Company, BRCC. If you guys are interested in coffee like I am, I'm a connoisseur of coffee, you guys could save 20% using Philcraft20 at blackriflecoffee.com. Uh BRC and Phil Kraft go way back. I actually knew Evan when he started the company. Me and me and Evan worked together in different capacities. Great American, great patriot, great people, and Matt Best and uh, Evan Hafer and all the team at BlackRifleCoffeeCompany.com. Make sure you follow Black Rifle Coffee and use PhilCraft20 to save 20% on checkout. Also, this podcast is sponsored by KillCliff.com. Look, KillCliff.com is making natural energy drinks without all the crap. I'm a big... A proponent of utilizing caffeine in exercise, and it's important to use the right amount of caffeine and the right drinks because a lot of these energy drinks could kill you. Um, I like the different versions of it, the Ignite, the Sustain, uh, the Recover. All these different aspects could complement your every single uh, day workout routines. I also like the fact that Killcliff helps the Navy SEAL Foundation. I'm a big proponent of any organization and any business for profit that helps nonprofits and other people, uh, whether that be advocacy groups or veterans, etc. These guys and gals are doing great things at killcliff.com. Use survival10. That's a reoccurring coupon code, survival10 to save 10% on checkout on all your Killcliff needs. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. It's T-R-I-A-R-C systems.com. If you're interested in custom carbines, pistols, rifles, all the suite from everyday carry to your everyday carbine. Look, I, I'm running their Triarch Systems gun right now. Um, they actually built me a custom gun, and it's the most reliable gun that I've ever used. Also one of the most durable. Uh, linked up with a couple of projects with 511 and been utilizing that gun on the flat range and had no issues ever with that gun. Also my everyday carry pistol, is a custom Glock 43 from TriarchSystems.com. Also, if you use Philcraft, one word, Philcraft, you could save 5% on any gun build. 5% is a lot when you're talking about a gun build. Make sure you support the good old boys in Texas from TriarchSystems.com. Hey, guys, this podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, I want you to take an opportunity and listen to the story. Look, a lot of people, when it comes to the controversy of women in combat arms, women um, in ranger school, don't understand the big picture. And this is coming from a Special Forces Sergeant Major, a former Special Forces Sergeant Major, and somebody who knows this space very well. I've talked to people, RIs, uh, leaders, uh, everybody involved 
that that really makes the decisions in these events and no standards were lowered for these women to go through ranger school and you have to understand that ranger school is a combat leadership development course if privates in the infantry if uh cooks and ranger battalion can go to these schools then combat leaders including females that are going to be on the front lines of war potentially even should be able to go to this school and they have they have the great thing is they have and you're going to hear the story of how history changed and hopefully us moving forward looking at women in these uh, roles and positions as soldiers instead of their gender so thanks for for tuning in uh, and i welcome L- lieutenant colonel lisa jaster thanks guys Hey, Lisa, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, I'm glad to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Hey, so I wanted to talk to you. There's a whole bunch of things that I want to go into, but most importantly, I think, to highlight the experiences that you've had in life. Your your story is unique, and I don't know really how to start this, but I think we should start really from the beginning. Of kind of, you know, not, not a lot of people know outside of uh, you being uh, accomplished as a Ranger School graduate, but don't know your backstory. And I think that's important to highlight. So can you take us like, where were you from? Uh, where'd you grow up? And then you went to West Point and then take us from there. Kind of kind of where you're at right now. Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Plymouth, Wisconsin, which is a really small town. Um, I was raised by my mom primarily with my brother. And then my dad and stepmom had six more kids. So I'm one of eight children. Um, and then I was really active throughout high school and uh, applied to West Point, actually, because my grandmother brought me a book when I was in seventh grade called In the Men's House by a West, one of the first female West Point graduates. And I read it and thought, wow, this is that sounds really hard. That sounds like a challenge. And so starting in seventh grade, I wanted to go to West Point. I started writing my congressmen and senators as a... I guess, 12, 13-year-old, started sending them my school pictures. And uh, when I finally got to go to West Point, it was like a, a dream come true. So, wow, that's that's awesome. That's amazing. So you kind of had this impression at a very young age what you wanted to accomplish as an adult. Like you had this vision of what you wanted to do. And, you know, most kids that are, you know, seven, eight years old or seventh grade or just young kids, period, they have this vision, but it's not realistic. It's a basketball player. It's, you know, statistically, it's not realistic, but you knew that you wanted to do this in particular, and then you follow through with that dream. Oh, yeah. I never doubted that I was going to join the military. I remember when Desert Storm kicked off, and I was glued to the TV, and I thought, God, those people on TV are doing something. Everyone might not know their name, but they'll remember this event. And I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of the military. Did you start off, uh, you know, did you have that sentiment as a young child because you came from the military background? Or was there a, a whole bunch of variables that led you up to like come into that conclusion? I mean, what was the, what were the inspirations if you could put your finger on a couple of them? So my family's interesting because we do have a lot of veterans. My dad's a West Point grad, class of 68. Um, my grandfather was in the Army Air Corps before there was the Air Force during World War II. But although we talked about military service, it wasn't a key thread in our life. But being from the Midwest, um, there's, a, there's a huge patriotic vibe. I, 
I think the draw was more to the, there's got to be something bigger than this. I, I have to do an activity that's part of a bigger team. Like watching the Olympics and being able to scream USA and feel like you're part of this big group of people and the Army and all the military services really felt like that to me. When I watched the Army-Navy game, growing up, having a West Point grad as a dad, we always watched Army-Navy and, and cheering Army versus for the Spartans or another mascot just felt motivating. Wow, that's really cool. I, I mean, a lot of people who serve in the military, the large percentage of them come from military families, and that's typically it's how it's handed down or the idea that turns into following that dream. And what's kind of unique about this story, we, we talked to a lot of, uh, of older veterans that kind of went through the same experience, but you were the class of 2000. And then obviously with 9-11, I mean, in the year 2000, I was an infantry team leader. I was a sergeant, um, a young sergeant. And then as soon as 9-11 happened, it completely altered the path of my reality. But for you, I can't imagine, like, you come out, you're a brand-new officer, a second lieutenant, I'm assuming, and then 9-11 happens, and your kind of world, I'm assuming, kind of flips upside down and everything changes, right? Definitely. And 9-11 had a different twist to me because the night before, one of my young specialists had attempted to take his own life. So I was in neuro ICU when the first plane crashed with my soldier because we couldn't find next of kin. So I had been up all night, as had the rest of the command team, and I'm driving into post, hear about the first, uh, the first building going down, the first plane crash, and get into the office. And I don't, I don't believe anything that's going on because I've been up 24 hours plus at this point in time. And being an engineer unit at Fort Stewart, it was our job as the construction unit to block off all the roads and start securing the post bringing in Jersey barriers and Texas barriers and um, putting standoff distances on all the major buildings. So we got there that day, and the only time I left was to go visit my soldier in the hospital. It was complete lockdown, and I can't even remember how many days we were we were at Fort Stewart. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I've heard that story a lot where a lot of different units and organizations, depending on what your job obviously was in the Army, a lot of the jobs that even weren't even tied to engineering or whatever were locking everything down, securing the bases and the infrastructure. And then that led off into you preparing um, uh, for the global war on terror, right? This big initiative. And, you know, you're, this is 2001 and then you're setting off in your career. Can you talk a little bit about what you do in the, in the military uh, as we work through, navigate our way through the story? Like what is your branch and what are you responsible for as an officer in that branch? So I'm an engineer officer and my lieutenant and young captain time was always construction. So right after September 11th, my battalion started deploying people as well. So we, first we were in charge of the lockdown and then 15 of us actually added on to the MPs and were um, quick reaction for Fort Stewart. So we were taking 24-hour shifts, living living in our headquarters section. Um, after that, we deployed to Afghanistan. I left early 2002. Uh, some of the, the battalion had already left at the end of 2001, where we did construction, but we also had minefield clearing operations. We had runway repair. And as the horizontal platoon leader for my company, 
that all that fell under me. So I had mine clearing bulldozers, MCAPs. I had uh, asphalt and concrete mixers to try to repair runways so that we could bring m- more and larger planes into Kandahar, which is which was where I was for most of 2002, at least that deployment. And then fortunately or unfortunately, we didn't have a terribly long deployment in Afghanistan, but we came back and then went straight to Iraq because OIF kicked off right after that. So we had back-to-back deployments being from Fort Stewart, but being being a force comm asset. And same thing there, it was building out base camps, clearing minefields where, where applicable. Um, a lot of wood construction, but again, I was mostly in the, the horizontal assets. But because I was a degreed engineer, I also got to actually flex my, my civil engineering mind and and do stuff a little bit higher than the normal turn to page 37 in the engineering construction manual, which was a great opportunity for a young 20-something. You don't get those kind of experiences in the civilian world and really outside of a deployed environment. You don't get them in the military either. Yeah, it's what's unique uh, about, uh, you know, the situation that I don't think a lot of people understand is when when you're deployed, no matter what your job entails, even if it isn't in uh, what you would consider a direct line combat MOS or specialty or job, um, no matter what, you're going to be involved in combat operations because the job requires that of you. Like I, I can imagine with engineering, construction, civil engineering, which means working with the populace, um, you would be exposed to the enemy, a target for exploitation. And a, a lot of people don't understand that. So uh, can you talk about some of the times, especially as a leader, what that meant for you, uh, those experiences and, and kind of changing your mindset as you evolve through the global war on terror? I remember during our last uh, FRG meeting before our first deployment, so meeting with the family readiness group, sitting with all the spouses. Of course, I didn't have a lot of females in my platoon, so it was it was all the wives were sitting around and we were talking. And I said, well, don't worry. We're engineers. We do construction. We're not going to be in the front line. If, if we're pulling guard and manning foxholes, the shit has literally hit the fan. And this is what I'm telling moms and wives and family members. And I remember being out there and being first we dug the foxholes with our equipment and then we occupied them and I remember thinking oh my god how how are these family members going to trust me as the leader of their husbands and children if I said hey don't worry we're definitely not going to do this and here we are we're doing exactly that and we're running our own convoy operations we had to pick up gravel every day we had to pick up sand to to improve the runway just so we could get airplanes with mail or other supplies, and the MPs could only support so much, and the infantrymen had their own missions, so we had to provide our own security sometimes. That, between occupying that, the foxholes and also doing security, it was a stark realization that all of these combat exclusion laws and all of these things that we were told we would never do because we were an integrated unit talking gender integration, um, that women weren't on the front line. Well, I had women in foxholes. I had women pointing their weapons outwards as they were driving up and down 
hostile city roads. So it was a stark realization that things were a little different than I thought they were and they weren't textbook, but it definitely taught me to appreciate what I needed my soldiers to provide. And in this case, the most competent soldiers, it didn't matter. Sometimes it didn't matter rank. It definitely didn't matter race. It definitely didn't matter gender. It didn't even matter religion, creed, background, anything. I needed the people I could rely on to pull 12-hour shifts and then be able to go out on the road when necessary. Yeah, it seems like a, a, a definitely a, a challenge as a female leader at that time because, like you said, it wasn't conventional because the doctrine as we understood it was decentralized and a lot of people were fighting in the army back in the day in positions, right? In certain specific roles. And those roles were very gender specific. They were very defined and you kind of didn't deviate. But in an, in an insurgency, obviously, that we're, we're facing, we're combating, especially with the, you know, whether it's village stabilization operations or just working with the civilian populace to rebuild um, uh, you know, the destruction of, of that uh, community, which was, which is a large part, I'm assuming of, of what you guys were doing as well. Um, outside of the infrastructure, you're going to be exposed to the enemy. And then what I like, I just hear it in your tone, but you, like you said about the creed and about the race, about everything that was going on, you didn't have time to worry about the policy and the politics and the drama behind it because you're just doing your job. Now, how was at that time, uh, with policy, with uh, you know things that you were hearing in the field, were you feeling like you were in a role in a combat role, but you weren't be? I don't know. I don't want to use recognition because I know you weren't looking for recognition. But were you feeling kind of this rift, this weird, this oddity? Because I remember that time period. I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, but around that time period, and I remember hearing about women winning the silver star getting on a field, uh, a 50 cal, fighting, defending bases. And I'm like, what? how is that possible? And then I'm like, wow, everybody is potentially an infantryman at some point. They have to be able to fight, which the Marine Corps has always done very well. You have to be a rifleman. But then the reality of that's hitting us. How did, how did that feel as an officer on, in specifically an organization that was on the front lines of war? So I got interviewed while we were in Afghanistan, and somebody asked me, hey, what's it like to be a woman in combat? And of course, I had a very glib answer. And I said, well, I have no comparative analysis. I've never been a man in combat. So I guess it feels normal. And then once I got my smart ass remark out of the way, my second answer was, you know, being a woman in this type of environment is different only in the fact that you put on a different face. And when I put on my soldier face, when I put on my uniform instead of my civilian clothes, I personally have to mentally change and not let that stuff bother me. If, if I feel like I'm a woman in a man's world, then I can't perform my job appropriately. And what I found is as long as I come in and I leave gender outside of the door, like I leave it in the street, then everybody else does. It might take them a minute but I have yet to meet that guy, gal, anyone who doesn't get involved in a conversation with me or something in the military where it clicks in their head that it doesn't really matter who, what this person is made out of. It matters what they can bring to the fight. And every single person I worked with, whether it be in Afghanistan, Iraq, Oman, Kuwait, 
back here in the States has all come to that same conclusion at some point in time, like I need this person to be value add. So I think initial impressions of a lot of people are, I'm not going to listen, especially I was a young lieutenant at the time. I'm not going to listen to this young person. I'm not going to listen to this woman that crossed people's mind, but I was a degreed engineer and we didn't have FET teams yet in country. We didn't have fests. We didn't have these engineers, these technical engineers in theater. So the best they had was somebody who had a bachelor's degree in engineering. So if I made a comment or said something, they understood that I had the background to, to back it up. Yeah. You had that relevant experience and then you were just, you were operating at the speed of war. You were quickly evolving and learning. You had no choice. I mean, you were on the front line. You're just doing what you have to do. And, you know, as you start evolving through your career, take us through, you know, I want to talk about Ranger School because obviously that's um, something, a distinct moment in your in your military career as far as accomplishments. But you did a whole bunch of things prior to that. Talk, kind of walk me through uh, briefly the experiences after war and then you, you uh, at some point, I'm assuming, transition into the reserve component. Is that is that right? And then you transition and then you wind up getting to the point until you ran your school. A lot of stuff takes takes place in that period of time. Right. So I had Afghanistan in 2002, 2003. We went to Iraq. In 2004, I finished my master's degree in civil engineering and went to the engineering advanced, what is it, the engineering captain's career course. And I met the love of my life who happened to be a Marine. So in 2004, master's degree, moved to South Korea and meet my husband. We didn't get married for another two years, but he got stationed in Okinawa. He was headed there before I met him. So I put number one on my list, South Korea, see if we could make this work. Um, and I was, I was able to have some interesting jobs over there because there was a transition in the military where a lot of the engineer captain's positions, the company command positions, became male only because of how we were setting up the modularization with Force 21. So there weren't a lot of uh, command opportunities for females. So I took an ordnance command. I actually took two ordnance company commands while I was in South Korea. Another great decision that I didn't want I did not want to be an ordnance company commander, but I learned so much more about logistics and what goes on, beans and bullets, behind the scenes, how complicated it can be. And especially in a place like South Korea where you can't have a, a gun in your personal home or in your car. It's, it's not normal like it is in the States. So the regulations and the rules and the standards for ammunition are completely different. Uh, with regards to how you interact with the local populace. Again, lots of exposure. Um, ended up deciding to leave the active service completely in 2007. So in February 2007, I got out of the Army completely. I always thought I would get in the reserves, but for whatever reason, I never found a unit and decided that I did not, after four of the last seven years being overseas in one aspect or another, I wasn't ready to be a newlywed and doing that again and again. So my husband at the time, or my husband got off active duty as well, and he joined the reserves immediately, and I got a job with Shell Oil and got really involved in my job. During, during that time, I ended up having a completely a five-year break in service, 
where I had both of my children and I was really happy that I was out of the military at the time. I was already juggling enough as a mom, a, a new wife, and starting a new career at a, a very good engineering for, uh, engineering company. I mean, Shell, Shell has lots of opportunities, so there's lots of travel. Um, being an engineer there, I did mostly project management and and it was it was a heavy plate. And I got contacted via social media, actually via Facebook, from a West Point old grad. And she wrote me and said, hey, you ever think about coming into the reserves? And at that point in time, I thought, well, yeah, it's about time to be a reservist. I think I'm ready. And so I, I got back in and joined her unit. And it took me, it actually took me almost two years to get in the reserve because I had been completely removed from all the Army books. But because I had moved so many times, I never got any documentation. So I didn't even know that I was off the IRR. So I had to go back to MEPS. I had to do, I had to duck walk with a bunch of 18-year-olds and go through a process that I was not ready to go through again. And then, um, so this unit was great. It was very, very supportive, but it wasn't a tactical-focused unit. And so during my time there, I kind of played with the other guys who were more militant in their thought process. So we'd go for our long weekends for training, our battle assemblies, and one of them would say something like, hey, Lisa, we're going skydiving. You want to come with us? Of course. Hey, Lisa, we're going to go jump off some rocks into a quarry. You want to go with us? Of course. Hey, Lisa, we're going to go rock climbing. Of course. Like, the me too answer was, yes, Are you, if you're going, take me too. I, I want to go. Please, God, take me with you. And at one point in time, the sergeant major of the unit calls me and says, hey, an Alarac came out and they're letting women go to ranger school and you should go. And at that point in time, I kindly wrote him a nice email that said, I like room service. No, thank you. Um. So he did what any good senior NCO would do. Uh, I like to say he performed a flanking maneuver. He called my husband. And at dinner, my husband just kind of threw it out there. Hey, Lisa, what's in your signature block? And in my signature block at the time was an Einstein quote. That's a ship is safest at the shore, but that's not what it's built for. And he kind of, he threw that out there and he, he said, hey, you know, why wouldn't you go? And I thought, God, there's, there's a bunch of 20-somethings. I, I was almost 37 at the time. There's a bunch of 20-somethings that are gung-ho starting their career. I'm a reservist who doesn't do much tactically. Um, I'm in shape. That's like the only thing that makes me qualified for ranger school as far as I was concerned. And, and my husband kind of talked me through my career and the different things that where I saw that gender didn't matter. And he said, you got, you got enough of a chip on your shoulder, and you've got enough experience, and you are long in the tooth. How would you feel if you didn't raise your hand to go to ranger school and no woman graduated? And with that, I went to Facebook and said, hey, if you don't support me, you can unfriend me now. And that was my throwing my hat in the ring. And the next day, I sent my social security number into DA and said, sign me up, put me on the list. Oh, wow. I get chills. That's awesome. That's amazing. So you had some, you were offered the invite with, with the slot. And then, you know, for people to, who are listening to this, who don't know what Ranger School is, 
I actually have a podcast just on Ranger School. Um, but for me, as a young PFC that went to Ranger School, it was a very impactful school in combat leadership development because it simulates, you know, uh, Ranger School started in the 1950s. It was actually established to train 17 Ranger companies that were preparing for, for battle and war. And then it became kind of a small unit tactics and then obviously leadership development course with the idea that if you're able to operate with sleep deprivation, with uh, little food, and still operate in the uh, scenarios of like austere environments and different environments, uh, then you could be a good combat leader. And it did all those things. And so I always let, remind people, you know, Ranger Battalion, which is uh, Ranger Regiment, which is three battalions, first, second, and third, have lineage, obviously, uh, from the Rangers in World War II, but also they went, they go to Ranger School as part of the qualification. Most MOSs in Ranger Battalion go, go to uh, Ranger School. Um, but it is also a school, but it's open to all uh, branches. It's actually, I went to Ranger School as a private in the infantry with Navy SEALs, with Green Berets, with uh, Air Force guys. It's open almost to all military, and it's a, an important school, especially for leaders or potential leaders who are going to serve on the front line. And so you get this war- warning order for this uh, Ranger School, and you're getting prepped and pumped. Talk me through the things that you were thinking about. Like, I remember the night before I went to Ranger School, I was 19 years old, 18 years old, and I was very intimidated because I saw the guys who had the tab, and they were the hardest dudes. They were the strongest, the fittest, and the smartest tactically. And so I was I was uh, in fear prior to going, and I had to get my mindset built out for it. So you're getting primed for it, and you're thinking about the training up and everything you're doing. What are you doing to prepare mentally and physically? So I think a funny thing for me is um, I was not in a unit that had combo equipment, weapon systems. Last time I was land navving was probably the last hunt I was on with with my family. Um, So the tactical training was my biggest stressor for me. And then as this experimental program was going on, women had several additional steps that uh, don't exist for normal ranger school attendance. So we had to put in our social security number and volunteer to go. But then each MACOM, so many women volunteered, hundreds of women volunteered, that each major command, MACOM, uh, was allotted a certain amount of slots. And so... I was just hoping that my MACOM would have enough slots and would be willing to send a 37-year-old. And we didn't find out until late, I think it was December, we found out when we were going. And there were four slots uh, at RTAC, which is the National Guard Ranger Training Assessment Course. And women had to pass that to be able to go to the April 2015 class. So that acted like your pre-ranger. That was your pre-ranger prior to going. Right. That was our pre-ranger. But before that, there was a a limiter. So you had to send in packets to your MACOM. You had to apply and you had to try to get compete for these slots. I didn't know what else to do. So I volunteered for the very first slot in the very first school that started in January for, for RTAC, which meant from the time I found out that this may happen to the time I was actually shaving my head down to a quarter inch of hair, I had maybe a month. So my preparation was a little bit different. Um, There was no place as a reservist I could go and get a 
pre-ranger physical. So I printed off the forms online and I went to a local emergency care facility with a blank check, my husband's approval, and these forms and said, I got to figure out a way to fill these out because no matter who I called, I wasn't near a military base. I couldn't get an appointment for a pre-ranger physical. So I walked through it with some civilian who had never seen a military document before and said, all right, let's, let's figure this out together. And this was, I think it was December 22nd or December 23rd. So this is right before Christmas. And then to be, to attend ranger school, you need an entire laundry list of things signed off on. You've taken a PT test, you've done a ruck march, you've done all of these different uh, events in qualifying times or to standard. Well, I also didn't have those, those things available to me. So I'm getting friends that I know are in the military to grade PT tests. I'm getting my husband to watch me do things. I, my husband was a battalion commander in San Antonio and so some of his INIs, his, he's a Marine, so some of his full-time guys uh, came in and taught me weapon systems. I hadn't touched a 240 since West Point, and I was doing breakdowns and putting them back together and clearing and all these things that as a, as a field-grade officer, as a major in, in the Army Reserve, I, I definitely would not be proficient at. They pulled out Camo for me. And this was on New Year's Day and January 2nd. And they came in for two straight days and did nothing but drill me on all of these different tactical uh, requirements that we had for ranger school. And then actually at one point in time, I believe it was between RTAC and ranger school, just to prove that I could do the 12 miler in time, I did the Woodlands half marathon with a ruck so that I had a chip time so I could send that in as proof to, to my command to make them feel comfortable to sign off on the memo. Wow, that's crazy. Because, you know, you're obviously in, you're in the reserve component, so you have to do, like, this unconventional planning to get your, yourself prepared for this. And as you're getting prepared, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, all the requirements that I had to go through, and it's many, right? There's a whole bunch of things leading up to uh, go into ranger school because it's almost like you have to earn the right even to go to ranger school. Now, are you sensing any, uh, are you hearing anything? Are you sensing anything about, um, you know, what people thought about the first, you know, reserve officer female going to ranger school? Because uh, one, it's a rarity for a major to go to ranger school, period, because uh, most ranger ranger uh, officers or officers in the infantry come out of IOBC, their infantry officer basic course, and as part of their pipeline will go, and then occasionally you'll get a captain or some a, a junior officer, but a major, you know, that's potentially a, co- a company, and then a battalion is it a battalion commander in the, in the big army, a battalion commander going to this school. I mean, uh, what are you feeling from other people like as a sense of it? I know they have to be supportive. But are people at this point like, ooh, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's going to be tough. One of the things that made me really happy about the friends I keep is even that Facebook post got resistance from people I'm close with. And I appreciated the honesty. And one of my favorite but least favorite sentiments was, hey, Lisa, if you, if you leave your children to continue to chase your own dreams, what's going to happen is if you're not for your if you're not there for your kids when they're small, they're not going to come to you when they're big with big things. Like if, if you're not there when they're small, they're not going to be there. 
they're not gonna they're not gonna come to you when they're big and and that that was a gut punch like I wasn't I was not expecting that and so wait they were saying if you went to ranger school which is a two-month school about eight weeks right that somehow this would create some uh instability in your children's lives because of what makes sense maybe make sense of that that's crazy well, because it's not typical. Hmm. As a mother, most most moms are not still tra- chasing their dreams. We we do. I shouldn't say it that way, but we chase dreams that are within an acceptable spectrum. And climbing a corporate ladder gets frowned upon often for for men and for women, but women feel it. I don't know if it exists more, but women feel it a lot more than than men do. At least I've seen in my experience. Um, but to actually leave my family and be completely out of contact with them for a minimum of nine weeks and, and chase my own dreams. And of course, everybody knows if you're going to be the first to do anything, your life is going to change in one way or the other. And here was my friend saying, Hey, listen, this is pulling you away from family and motherhood and, and these things that you chose to do. And how far it pulls you away, we don't know. And it actually started my thought process of why am I really going and how I present topics on leadership and team development and gender integration today, even when when I do my speeches and when I go out and talk to other people. Because the part that shocked me about what they said is, but Alan went to dive school. And we had a child. Alan's gone to schools. Nobody's ever said that to him. And I wasn't mad because they were saying it to me. I was mad because people aren't giving that same consideration to the men in our families. And it completely flipped my thought process with regards to gender. Because I can't tell you how many times the guy who sits next to me at work is told to go on a business trip. And it's his kid's birthday. And and it's just expected that he should be able to go and he's okay with it. And at least in my children's life, my husband is as important, if not more important than I am. He's the one who's taking them to football and going and kicking the soccer ball around and, and doing these different things with both our son and our daughter. He's, he's out there. He's an active part of their lives. And the same consideration that's been given to me, like, hey, you shouldn't abandon your children, should be afforded to him. So I really actually appreciated the comment. I, I got several of the, the trolley-type comments, but that was the one that, that started my thought process of, I really need to do this because I need to prove that women can, can equally hold responsibility in the military just like men can equally hold responsibility in the house. Yeah, it seems like a um, a part of the ingrained culture, right? It's the it's the stereotypical path, and if it's if it's bred in that culture, I'm sure that person who was your friend was saying that from a place of of understanding their own understanding and bias, which they didn't even understand the context of. But you use that as fuel to kind of accelerate the growth because you're changing a culture, you're changing an idea, right? Because the the old ideology prior to the global war on terror was this, again, conventional mindset where 
we didn't even know what an insurgency, insurgency looked like. Where now, which was the overall point of Rainer School, which was if you were in a group or institution of, of men and the leaders were killed in that unit, the lowest level private in that organization had to pick up the gun and then continue with the plan. And so now it's like, okay, well, any member of that unit could be a male or a female. And any person in that unit should be responsible or given the opportunity to learn to be responsible to pick up that gun and continue to fight. And so you're getting primed for, for Ranger School, and it's, it's leading up to the days that you're going. What are you thinking the night before that you got to go to Ranger School? <laughs> that one... The night before actual ranger school was, was a challenge for me. Um, the, a lot of the women who had passed RTAC were active duty military, and they were able to section off a portion of their life. And just like many of the, the males do, each of the MACOMs have their own pre-ranger. You do ranger PT leading up to ranger school. There's some sort of prep. I wasn't. I, I wasn't active duty. I wasn't available to go on road marches two to three days a week. I was doing everything from my house. I was I was flying on business trips. I was in Canada one week. I went to China one week. I I was all over. So the showing up the night before, I felt like, is everybody else more prepared for this? What have I done? I haven't put on a uniform in a month, much less been able to get graded or look at the Fort Benning terrain or get acclimated. Granted, coming from Houston, it wasn't it wasn't a shock to the system, but it's definitely different. And I think for me, sitting in the hotel room the night before was a true fear of what if I show up and I don't know where to go? I don't have any of the right stuff. I, I'm not having an NCO drop me off. I'm calling a cab. And it was only exacerbated by the next morning. I got a cab, made him stop by Subway so that I could gorge on food right before I walked through the gate. And he picked up three other ranger school hopefuls, and they were all guys. And they got in the van and said, wait a second here. We're going to ranger school. You have a female in the car. I thought this whole van was going. And the the driver was all excited. He's like, she is going to ranger school too. And he was all pumped up. That's and awesome. It was actually, it was fabulous because my, my number one fear was that I wouldn't know what to do, where to go. I wouldn't have any buddies there. I'm not coming with my unit. I don't, I literally don't know what to expect. I don't even know if I shaved my head properly. Not something I've done several times in my life. So did yeah. you do that prior? Uh, did you go to, go to Ranger Joe's and get it shaved off right there and Benning prior to doing that? And what was that like when you're telling the barber, you're like, just cut it off. So I had to shave it before pre-ranger and we only heard about it a couple days before they had no idea what what standard they were going to hold the women to and based on the army standard women can't have shaved heads so we had to have a minimum of a quarter inch and so I was looking up all the regulations and I went into my local hairdresser and I said I want to donate my hair and he's like how much and I said all of it and he started putting my hair in these ponytails so that he could cut it off and put it in the uh, packet to send to Locks, Locks of Love. And when he did that, he gave me the scissors. He says, I can't do it. And he actually started tearing up. He's like, you have beautiful hair. I can't cut. I can't. I can't shave your head. 
Like I can't do this. So I ended up having to cut my own hair. And so I'm at a beautician's salon in Houston with the scissors chopping my hair off. And once I got all the little ponytails cut off, he came in and gave me a buzz cut and, and kind of styled it. And then my husband being the good Marine that he is, he actually continued the haircutting process and was the one who gave me my pre-ranger school haircut. And we did a, a, a bathroom selfie with all my hair on the floor. And it's actually one of my favorite pictures because, of course, I wore makeup and put earrings in and tried to doll it up like it was something good. Uh, unfortunately, I had read the regulation and I was allowed to have a taper. But when you show up, it's it's ranger school. You're not allowed to have anything. So I ended up sitting in the parking lot in the rain, uh, cutting my hair with the scissors. So because it was a little too long on the top, apparently. And oh my gosh, I can't even imagine this. It, it's because obviously, you know, I'm thinking of it from even a, a female perspective where your hair. That's the style, right? Everybody recognizes women by partially by their hair. And so you're cutting it off. Was there like, I, I used to go through this uh, process, but whenever I shaved my head after combat, like every rotation I had this, this thing where I'd shave my head, like it was like a cleansing, right? But when you're shaving, yeah, I don't even remember ranger school shaving my head. And it was like, my mindset was like, I'm, I'm preparing. You know, it's like a, it's like a physical um, routine that gets you prepared for something that you're going to face, you know, adversity, obviously. Uh, did, did it, did it make you feel any way inside your mind? I would say probably the hardest part other than deciding to go to ranger school was shaving my head. And the best part about it was on that 12 mile road march when I wanted to quit. And I don't, I never really wanted to quit the road march, but I wanted it to be done. So you can understand this at no point in time. Did I, do I remember telling myself, hey, I want to quit. I want to get out of here. But I do remember saying prayers like, you know, if I happen to get an injury and it's not my fault, I'm not mad at you, God. You know, just some of these like, I don't want to quit. But if it happens to end badly and it's your decision, God, I'm okay with it. And I got to that point on the 12-mile road march at the end of rap week. So it's, you know, the fourth day, a little bit of sleep deprivation, a little bit of nutritional deprivation deprivation not not bad by that point and I'm going on the road march and I'm feeling like I'm not hitting my hit times I'm really really worried I started thinking oh I'm I'm a woman I'm the first woman doing it I get to be here and that became one of my mantras I get to be here I can't believe I get to be here well after a while your feet start blistering and you get sore and you get tired and it's not I get to be there okay well I need to be a positive influence for women I'm changing the army I'm you know and it's these grand thoughts and then it's okay well you know, I want, I want my daughter to have whatever opportunities. I want doors open. And, and the goals or the reasons why I'm there got smaller and smaller. And by mile 11, it was literally, I cut my hair for this shit. I cut my hair for this shit. I cut my hair for this shit. And all I kept thinking about is what if I go back to work with a shaved head and nothing but blisters on my feet to show for it? Because I have a lot of hair. Yeah. So it was, yeah. I cut my hair for this shit was, was one of my mantras other than I get to be here. I love that because it's like, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, it's a, a great example of how, uh, 
everybody is created equal when you're in a school like that, right? Because you get broken down to the Ross level. Because you come in and people have egos, people have ideas, people have all these illusions. And then as you start to peel away the layers, you get broken down. And everybody's thinking the same thing. Everybody's broken down to the core. And then it's like you're really assessing at that moment, what are you made of? Like, what are you here for and what are you made of? And the greatest thing about that camaraderie that's built is you're all made of the same stuff. No matter what your skin color is, no matter what your sex is, you're made of, of the same stuff. And so, I, and, I, and I don't understand, I don't know if this is true, but this is, is this the first ranger school class that women were allowed to go into? This is the first one period, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was an experiment, and we were looking at it not as the first integrated class, but the integration experiment. So if we failed, there was there might never be any other women invited into the gates at Ranger School. So and this is the first time in history. In history, yes, in history, that was the first time they'd ever allowed women through the gates. So you you guys started. Uh, because a rap week is zero week, I believe, where it's like the ranger assessment where you can go through certain things like the road march, like the PT test, the swim test, and then kind of skip that over for, for day one. You started ranger school with how many women total? So 19 women showed up on day zero, and ultimately eight of us made it through the end of rap week. Wow. So you cut out 11, 11 right after five days of zero week essentially. And then you get the weekend off. You start Ranger School one of There's no weekends off. <laughs> oh, there's there's no weekends off. When I went through zero week, they gave us Saturday and Sunday off and then we started day one Ranger School with a new thing. But you don't even get that weekend anymore. No, so you, you go through rap week and it's terrible because you start that twelve mile road march and that's the end of rap week, but they started it at three, four o'clock in the morning and when you finish, you're all excited. You made the time. You, you think you've made it. And they're like, oh, hell no. Ranger school starts now. This was like your pretest. Ranger school starting right now. And from there, it was breakfast. And, and then we, we started in on our first event. So this is what I want to clear up. Because this is, well, one, I want to say this as a former Special Forces Sergeant Major that uh, what you have to understand, young men mostly, you have to understand, is that uh, this school, because combat arms was opened up prior to this for females. After. Oh, was it after? Yeah. So we went through, we started in April, and Chris and Shay graduated in August. I didn't graduate until October. So I was the, the third to graduate out of the three of us who, who made it through ranger school from that first class. And they discussed opening combat arms during that period of time. And it wasn't until I believe, I believe it was December 2015, where officially the combat exclusion law was lifted. Wow. So not only are you guys, you know, initiating the start of pioneering something that's never been done in history before, but this literally changed the way the military viewed females and combat roles, because now females can serve as combat leaders and combat MOSs in the infantry and combat engineering, combat medics, the list goes on. And so um, as you're going through this process, one of the things that's been highly debated is the change, the changing of standards. And what I was going to say is, you know, 
as an SS Sergeant Major who, who sees the big strategic picture, right, of the things that we're doing in combat and who has a lot of trips to uh, combat, uh, combat rotations who've seen females. I've, it's funny because I, I was doing this post years ago, but I've operated overseas doing, you know, special reconnaissance operations, low-vis reconnaissance operations with female counterparts operating overseas with where we would take our female engagement team and tra- integrate them into our team and use them as reconnaissance assets to lower the signature in semi-permissive environments and then be prepared to kill bad guys on the X. And these women were integrated in our teams and attachments. And this was before all this was going on. And what people don't understand is women have always served in that capacity because when it comes to fighting and engaging the enemy, the policy, the doctrine, the uh, all the things that are outside of the, the war on the ground, the tactical war on the ground, didn't don't matter because what matters is getting the job accomplished. And females have always played an integral role in that. Now, officially, obviously, it's it's changing, which is is for the better. So, I want people to understand that a combat leadership development school should have never been excluding females from the get go. I mean, it takes a global war on terror for people to kind of see that with the insurgency and then the needs and requirements. But I've always uh, assessed and agreed that it should have never existed from, uh, from the get-go. So you're changing history. You're going through this. And people are highly in debate. Every post that I do, every post that I've seen is like, well, they, they lowered the standards. What is your take on that? Because obviously you lived it as a major. We're not talking about a private who went in. We're talking about a major with lots of experience in the military and sees the big picture. What, what, what's your take on that? So many things are going through my head right now. I think the most interesting thing is, do we trust our military? And and anytime somebody doubts that the standards were upheld, it's questioning all of those Ranger instructors that were there, all of the leaders and the students. I have yet to hear or see any of my classmates, which were right there with me the whole time, come out publicly. I mean, How many book deals could you get if you came out publicly saying, I stood next to Lisa Jaster and I know she didn't do the same thing I did? I mean, it if it was there, somebody would have said it by now. But the biggest thing is talk about Rap Week. Rap Week had one standard. The public was visible. They were out there. Media was out there for our PT test. The five miler didn't get any shorter for the women. The 40-minute time limit where they called time and everyone who hadn't passed the line had to go to the side and go get their bags. That 40-minute timeline didn't change for the women. Those chin-ups were the same. I mean, you could physically see it for the PT test. Swimming. How how could you possibly change? Well, you have a stool underwater. I, I don't understand how it could possibly have changed. And when you go through the actual ranger school, hiking through the mountains, my packing list was the same as everyone else's. I don't know how I could carry less. And a lot of us were carrying saws, 240s. I was I was carrying extra gear almost every day. And part of it was I made Ranger School harder for myself because I wanted to kill the naysaying before it started. The mountains didn't get any shorter for us. The the climbs weren't any less steep. My rucksack might have been slightly lighter because I wear a size 6 boot. That's about the only standard that could be different is maybe my gear is a little lighter because I'm a pocket ranger. 
Yeah, it, it, what's confusing to me is, uh, you know, I know, one, I've heard, I saw it on social media where guys were like, well, my buddy was an RI and he said the standards were lowered. And then I thought about the attrition that I had heard from the inside of how many women didn't make it. And then I went, well, if people aren't making it, then then was the standard, where, where did the standard deviate left or right? And then I called RI buddies of mine. I was like, listen, I want to talk to dudes at RTB. What's going on? No standards were changed. That's what I was told literally from an RTB commander, the fourth RTB commander. No standards were changed uh, when this took place, and they will not be changed. And what? And, and I want like people kind of to understand this. I didn't think Ranger School was hard. It sucks. It's a suck fest. But overall, when you look at everything that you have to do, like in Rap Week, for example, it's not super difficult. But regardless, the attrition rate typically is about 50% anyways from beginning to end. That was before. So you have 50% of the male population that go to ranger school that want to be high-speed ranger-qualified guys, half of them won't make it. And so the attrition's there, that standard is there, and 50% don't make it. So as you talk about the standard, when you assess in ranger assessment uh, or the RAP uh, assessment portion of it, that first week is to we. it's like the first gate. Before we even go into patrolling and waste the time of teaching people op orders and everything else, we want to make sure physically these people meet a standard. And that standard was not changed, was not deviated whatsoever. So now you're going through, there's Fort Benning, there's Dahlonega, there's uh, Mountain Phase. And obviously for the RIs and ranger instructors, this is a different animal. Nobody's, nobody even know, I don't even know if these guys were taught how to manage this expectation. Uh, and I know we talked personally offline about kind of the circumstances in which they segregated or separated you. And I was surprised to hear that they really didn't do that. Uh, talk to us about some of that experience and then talk to us about some of the experiences you had where there was an oddity or just this weird aura uh, from, from the males that were in your class because they'd never experienced this before. The classmates took about maybe 15 to 20 push-ups, overhead squats with your duffel bag to realize they didn't care who was standing to the left or right. So for most of my classmates, except when it was a recycle and I had to, I recycled a lot more than I should have or a lot more than I would have wanted to. Um, every time I got a new platoon, I had about a two to three hour period where they were a little curious. I was a unicorn or uh a malignant tumor, something that they wanted to get rid of because there was a lot of attention. If you had a squad that had a female, you know, during graded patrols, during anything, there's a lot more attention. There wasn't a lot of train up uh, because how do you train somebody to deal with with women when you want women to be treated exactly like men? So they brought in these um, observers advisors, which were females who were mostly senior NCOs in the in the army who didn't have any ranger school experience, but they were trained to be there just in case there were issues. And it, I understand the thought process behind it, but it brought extra attention. So anybody knew if I was PL for the day that they were going to be graded harder because there was more people on deck. There, it, it was going to be looked at closer. So that was the only animosity I got from classmates was, oh man, I don't want to be graded the same time you're graded because of the level of attention that I'll receive. As far as the instructors were concerned, it was really hard on them. Um, none of them have come up to me afterwards and told me this 
personally, but I can't fathom coming to Ranger School and having to deal with this first integrated class with, as you stated, very little real training, most of them never working with women before in a direct leadership role. And then being told, hey, you know, you, you got to uphold the standard, you treat everybody the same. And then they go home and they see social media and they hear the news and they hear the publicity that's going on, which was very divided. And God forbid if I was a fly on the wall on the personal conversations that they had to deal with as well from from peers and other people who didn't really understand what was going on. So that was challenging. But a lot of times, again, in the middle of the patrol, they would realize, yes, I'm just I'm just another ranger school student. I really want to be here because I want to be good. And going back to an earlier comment, yeah, as a 37-year-old major, it was weird for me to be there. But a couple of our eyes approached me. Hey, why are you doing this? Why would you want to do this? I had one person at one point in time say, why would you take a, a slot away from a male so that you could go to the school? Which again, going back to your point that the pass rate isn't all that high for rap week, which you can prepare for. It's it's online. You can see exactly what rap week's going to look like. I never felt, I personally never felt I was taking a slot away from anyone because there's a lot. Well, what's your answer? Yeah. What's your answer to that? Because I mean, there is a definitive answer and I, I have it as a sergeant major in me, but what is the answer to that? To me, it's easy. If, if I was taking away a slot from a qualified soldier, then closer to 100% of the people who were showing up would be graduating. And on, again, it went through my mind before I came to ranger school because people would ask me, hey, how could you do that? How can you take a slot away from, from a man who needs it for his MOS? He gets kicked out of ranger battalion if he's, he doesn't pass ranger school. And my anxiety about that question was completely squashed on – that very first day, day one, we took our APFT. We started with about 400. I think we were 399 people started on day one, and 25% didn't pass the PT test. We were fully rested, fully fed, and only 75% of our class made it to breakfast on the first day of ranger school. I never felt bad about that because if I took a, a slot from somebody – I probably took a slot from somebody who wasn't prepared. So I never felt bad about that. that but that was one of the, the conversations we had. And again, the students, eventually, everyone understood that I was just there to do the same thing they were, which was to be a better leader. When an RI would approach me about my age, usually, or my, my rank, not necessarily my age, my comment was always, I'm an engineer, and one day I'm going to be an engineer battalion commander, and I'm going to have... I'm I'm going to have route clearance. I have I have God knows what kind of engineers and engineers support infantry. Oh, and by the way, part of our motto is the secondary mission of an engineer is to fight as infantry. So me knowing infantry tactics and being able to be a infantry or a combat leader is exactly in my wheelhouse. And I always thought that. But the fun times came, those late night sensitive items checks. And I'm not sure how well you remember these, Mike, but, you know, somebody's always missing something or doesn't call out what they have. And the RI sits there and says, hey, I need, I have four saws in the platoon. Let me see all four saws I have. And he goes down his list and you hold up your gear. Well, a hundred round uh, saw pouch is called a nutsack. And it's always been called a nutsack. 
And the RI is going through his list and he's like, hold up your... And for the life of him, he went completely blank on what it could be called other than a nutsack. And he just stood there and the whole platoon started laughing. So of course I was the saw gunner that day. So I stood up, Sergeant, I have my nutsack. I mean, how else are you going to deal with it? But Ranger School was filled with a lot of those moments of the military is a masculine organization that has masculine ways of saying things. And as long as I'm okay with it, we got a good laugh, and then we were told to suck it up, shut up, and get back. I, I, I imagine, because I, I imagine as you're progressing through Ranger School, the guys that you're operating with, right? Like you said, quickly they determine what your priorities are, right? If you're biased, if you're racist, if you got issues, well, all those issues go by the wayside because the concentration is on how do I get through this? How do I make it? How do I get through my patrol? How do I make it to the next day? And so all your priorities shift. I mean, like you said, people do your left and right. They don't, they don't care who's their left, to their left or right. So you start building this rapport with these men. And you're, you're, you're literally living every single day in these combat, simulated combat environments. You're crapping in the same holes. You're you know, eating the same crappy chow. You're going on the same combat patrols. And you're learning a lot about each other. As you started to bond with these men, did they start to lose or kind of recondition their minds that you were even a female at all and that 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 gender even mattered? I don't know if you got to hear I don't think you did get to hear this story earlier today, but one of my favorite moments at Ranger School is we had finished going through the swamps in Florida. And at that point in time, the RI told me to go down the road a little bit and set out a chem light because everybody had to take off all their clothes and change so you don't get sick. And um, I came back over to meet up with my platoon and one of the guys, he was taking forever to change. Anyways, he was, he was butt-ass naked. And he's like, Jaster, I got to tell you something. And he turns to me full frontal. And I'm like, dude, you're naked. And the shock on his face, he goes, oh my God, you're a chick. And it literally was, he had to realize that I was a woman. And it was so funny because if he hadn't been naked, I probably would have hugged him. Because it was that moment of complete acceptance where gender didn't matter. And it was all because some dude forgot I was a woman. And, And there's several little moments like that, but that was definitely one of my favorites. That's so amazing. I, I, I always, because I, I think about the, the the females that we've integrated into our detachments, and you know, for all these naysayers out there, unless unless you've been in special operations, you don't understand what I'm talking about, because we have always integrated females into our teams, even even before the FET teams were were uh, actually a thing, uh, they were integrated. So they're important and integral role in special operations, and you should understand that before you even run your mouth. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but but what I what I think is interesting is as you start to build this rapport, and you're evolving through this uh, this progress, you're starting to realize like what the priorities are, and everybody is is disassociating the gender, and you're starting to learn, and you're starting to understand patrolling. And are things starting to click for you? Are things starting to, because I remember this like light bulb switch came on where I was like, oh, well, now I have the confidence to give a warno, and now I have the confidence to give an op order and to be in charge. And I don't know, say, if you're playing the game, but you're, you're getting better at fighting war. 
And and that's what's important. And you're starting to learn and you're evolving through this process as a leader. Did you feel at some point that you're kind of, it was an evolutionary process for you? So for me, it was almost the opposite because you went as a junior enlisted and I went as a senior officer. So I didn't get all the PL during Warnord, um, during the, the briefing jobs because I was good at that. That's all I had ever done. So when I gave my first op-board brief, the RI actually looked at me and said, I have never seen a better, better briefing. But now react to contact. The last time I did small unit movement or had to do any of those tactics uh, was a long time ago, especially with a five-year break in service and then not being in a very tactical unit at the time that I went to ranger school. So it had been probably close to 10 years since I had even practiced some of those tactics. So what I did is I figured out that there's smart rangers and there's strong rangers. Well, I can be a smart ranger and I can be a fairly strong ranger. Like I said, I tried to carry much more than than some of my peers that were my size. The big guys will always carry big stuff. It just it just kind of rolls out that way. But I always tried to carry extra gear and I always went to the center to help with writing the op boards. The thing I didn't realize is being an engineer with my civilian background and also coming at it from even a female point of view or a different point of view is sometimes my operation operational decisions were a little too artful for a school that's graded. Um, and then I, sometimes I needed to learn how to shut up, keep my eyes forward and march. So um, by the time I was in swamps, I, I realized that I needed to be actively engaged in the mission every single day. So if I wasn't in a leadership position, I either volunteered to be a team leader or I wanted to be point man because I needed to be actively engaged as somebody who had been in leadership roles, who had gone to West Point, who had only ever learned how to be actively engaged in the front. I wasn't very good at being member of squad. So I think understanding how hard it is sometimes to be the sit down and color that role is necessary and I'm terrible at it well that's a good point I mean you brought up a really good point I never even thought about even in the op order thing because you're used to high level strategic briefing right and at the tactical level even the operations order is pretty complex it's pretty detailed I never even thought about that, and that's very interesting for you to say that. And you know, in ranger school, part of the uh, part of the examples of how you could be successful are like when in charge, be in charge, right? But also, you have to play a good subordinate. You got to be a good private, and you have to be a good machine gunner and grenadier. You got to be a good Joe um, or Joette or Joanne or whatever. Joe, Joe okay. Uh, so, um, let me ask you this: What is what was for you the most difficult part of ranger school? And here's, I'm just going to tell you preliminary thoughts, or I would think it would be the physical, but based on knowing you and your physical capabilities, I'm assuming that's probably not what it was. So when I got to my second round at Swamps after recycling a couple times, it, it became physical a little bit. I got really winded because after it took me almost six months to get through the school uh, at that point in time, my, my body had definitely degraded, but up to then, it was me getting out of my own way. So I was so stuck on trying to prove myself that a lot of times I always had to be learning, had to be asking the questions, had to be pulling information, even with some of my peers. Hey, you're in Ranger Battalion. How do you do this? Lisa, I just need to sit. 
Like, I just need to sit and eat my MRE. Give me, give me five minutes. And so for me, it was, I probably came pretty close a couple of times to running myself over the edge, just pushing a little too hard, whether it was to prove myself or, you know, it's, it's such a careful balance if you're an outlier, whether it's a physical, racial, whatever. If you're an outlier, if you stick out, how do you work on fitting in without trying to prove yourself? Even, you know, the last couple of days hanging out with someone like you, I want you to think I'm tough, but I also don't want to lose who I am. I'm feminine, but I want to tell you my cool guy stories. But my cool guy stories are never going to be as cool as your cool guy stories. And and it was that was the other part that was really hard. So it was it was hard for me to pull back and and maybe not go in the center and help write the operations order or you know maybe just take a knee and and rest when we're at a stop rather than digging out the maps and trying to figure out what's going on all the time. So that that aspect was hard, but then the other aspect of these guys are some of them were literally younger than my duffel bags. I had issued duffel bags older than some of my peers. How do I fit in and, and be a leader among leaders while also being somebody they can just, hey, my girlfriend wrote me this letter. Isn't this stupid? Like, I still wanted to be one of the guys. So that was my biggest challenge. Wow, that's so amazing. <laughs> I can't even imagine because, I, I mean, I, I try to think about some of the issues that I had. Like when I went to the to Ranger School, I was E5 airborne, have my expert infantry badge, but I was a tomb guard. I had guarded the tomb of the unknown. So I was already a tomb guard. So everybody kind of knew that. So I had this weird thing hanging over me where they're like, you're not even a real soldier. You're like a toy soldier kind of thing. <laughs> and I just remember having to work through that. But gender is completely different because your our brains work completely different. And I, I hate people who are like, there is no gender. There is no way of thinking. It's proven scientifically. We have different ways of thinking. Did you ever, because I know you're a mom, and you're a really good mom. And did you ever go into mom mode? Because I imagine <laughs> at that oh age, like you would go into mom mode because you, you have you have these kids, I mean, that are brand 17, 18, 19-year-old kids that are there. And and what was that process like? Like what were the instances where you went into that, that mode, that nurturing mode, right? Mm, yes. So – there's a lot of weird things that you know from being a mom. And there's a lot of things you're really comfortable with once you're a mom or a parent. And so as a parent, as an athlete, as a hunter, I'm completely comfortable talking about, hey, did you look at your poop? And, you know, I, you, know you got a guy who's sick. And I'm like, well, what does your poop look like? Oh, my God. You want me to tell you that? I'm, yeah. Did you look at it? No. Well, you need to. Like... This is, this is important. This is your body telling you how, how things are working. And so I would have conversations like that. But there's actually a videotape of a, um, a ranger school graduate who talks about a story. And he just references one of the females at ranger school. And I was behind him in the phone line. And he was talking with his buddy about a rash he had somewhere. And I gave him a recommendation. And... It was a really good recommendation, and it included his sunglass case and maybe using it as a sheath to protect certain body parts And because he had really bad rubbing. And I didn't think anything of it, but apparently the pain was bad enough that it was like, I don't, I don't know if I can jump tomorrow because 
not everything's good. And I didn't even think about it until I'm listening to this interview and I'm dying laughing, thinking, oh, my God. You know, and this poor guy was just talking to his buddy. And, I mean, these kind of things. But they did. They popped up like that. It was one of – actually, I was – I think I was the 240 gunner and it was my AG and – his hair was starting to grow in, and it was just a slightly different color of red than mine. So everybody joked because his mom, I think, was a year younger than me, and he was a sleepy ranger. And at one point in time, I woke him up, and in the patrol base, he yells, Mom, I'm coming. I'm up. I'm up. And he, like, yelled it. And everybody's like, oh, Mama Ranger. <laughs> That's so amazing. Oh, we should have went to ranger school together. That would have been fun. Um, so... So are you the, at this time, are you the oldest, because I, I remember going to ranger school and we had like a 40 something, maybe a sergeant major. It was like a big deal, right? It was a senior person, but they were older, but that was a big deal. They were the senior class leader of everything that was going on. So are you one of the oldest uh, people that are there uh, at ranger school at the time? At the time, there was a chaplain that was 40 years old and he graduated with us and, and he and I ended up recycling at different times, but graduating together. And very impressive, by the way. A, a chaplain going through ranger school, first of all, hands down, I wow. But yeah, he was 40 years old, and so we commiserated. Actually, he was one where I actually asked him, hey, will you pray with me? And he's like, sure. And I said my little, dear Lord, it doesn't have to be, I don't want to like not be able to work out in six months, but you know, if it it makes me go home for a short period of time. And he looked at me and said, we can't pray for that. And and it was my son's seventh birthday. And I remember we were in mountains and we were taking a knee. And I'm like, you got to pray with me. And he looked at me. He's like, no. But, you know, there, I think there's even been a female that's graduated that's older than me at time of graduation at this point. But, yeah, I was definitely one of the oldest. So a little bit about the recycling portion of Rainer School. And people have to under you have to understand something like when you when you fail patrols, which is typically the way that you recycle, and you could have med recycles, they give you another chance. And and the scary thing about Ranger School, uh, I remember when I went, and I'm assuming it's the same, is you could get one patrol, so it's one opportunity depend on your timing. And some guys, depending on who they are, I remember uh, a lot of the Ranger Battalion guys got two opportunities, like if there was a, a private first class. But more senior guys didn't get that opportunity. And what would happen is you get one chance. If you didn't make it and you never got another patrol, you had to recycle. And what I want, I'm just telling you this because the options are you can quit and go home or you could stay and try again. And staying and trying again, depending on if you hit best ranger competition, could extend your timeline to extra months. And so if ranger school graduates who go straight through have a 100-yard stare, ranger school graduates who go through the gulag and, and, and have an extended period have a 1,000-yard stare because you are literally at war, degraded. Your body is degraded. Your mind's degraded. You are beat down, and you're still there, and you're not quitting. And, and you, how many times did you wind up recycling? I did the first phase three times and the second and third phases twice each. So seven. I did seven phases of a three-phase ranger school. And how long were you there completely total? 181 or 182 days. Long enough that they, uh, the Department of the Army sent my husband a letter and asked if he wanted to PCS to Benning. Oh, my God. So this is – it's pretty amazing to hear that because you have to understand, like, you are at war. Like – 
engaged in, in combat with sleep and food deprivation for 180 plus days for six six months. Oh my gosh, I can't even um, I can't even fathom that. So you went to Ranger School three times. Oh my gosh, that uh, but it's a, just a testament to your 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 willpower and obviously your resilience to bounce back and continue. So let's talk about that. Like for you to stay in this, what what is driving you outside the initiation of your hair? What what's driving you through the sustained suck fest of being here and not giving up? Like what what were your incentives? What are your motivations and what's your mindset? I had a great moment uh, during the road march. And it was afterwards, and I had I had slightly beaten a guy who was trying really hard to not get beaten by a woman. And it was really simple. He came up to me afterwards, and, and he kind of apologized. And he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the things you never heard me say. And, wow. and it clicked something in my mind, and I thought, oh, my God, whether or not I ever get to wear the coveted ranger tab – there's at least one future leader in our army who's going to hold his female soldiers to a higher standard. And then as I started talking to some of these soldiers, I realized that their opinions of women, women in the military, some were positive, some of them were negative, but it was all based on who they had worked with or who they had lived with or if they had a strong mom growing up or if their sister was a badass. Like all these things impacted their opinion. And by me standing next to them doing overhead squats and flutter kicks and jumping in cold water and screaming the Ranger Creed as loud as I can, if I could give them exposure to one strong woman, that could completely change them as leaders for the next 20 years of their career. And after that happened, I, I remember calling my husband after one of the recycles, and he said, hey, do you think he's my husband, he, he supports me, and he very much loves me, and he was very angry at the people who weren't allowing me to pass. Of course, he's my husband. It couldn't have possibly been anything I did wrong. So he's on the phone with me, and he's like, baby, are they going to let you pass? Why are you staying? And this is when I was a day one recycle. So I had to restart and do rap week a second time. And I'm on the phone with him, and I'm like, I don't know that it matters, baby. These people literally are changing their opinions based on me just being here and trying hard, I don't think I can leave. And and that was our conversation. And I was able to carry that through all the way through October. When did you day one recycle? How far along were you before you, when they made you day one? So the eight women that made it through um, rap week made it all the way to the end of Darby. And we all went through Darby twice. So all eight women recycled Darby. After we had gone through twice, then we were going up for our battalion. We had already done our battalion board. We were doing the next board on whether or not we were going to be kicked out. We all assumed we were because you can't. We had all been told you can't fail twice and, and get recycled again. Well, um, the three of us that ended up getting the, the day one recycle there were there was a couple guys who were offered day one recycles as well um, because it wasn't open to women yet. There was no way I was leaving and going to try again when it's not open. So the, the women accepted it. The men said, hey, we'll go back to our unit, retrain, and come back in a couple months. But So it was after two cycles of Darby that um, 
the three of us had peered very well. And based on our peers and the comments from the RIs, we, we were offered day ones if we could do push-ups right then and there to pass the PT test because everybody was concerned. And I know that I believe the men go through a, a similar um, event should you be offered a, a, a day one. But right then and there in the office with everyone, I had to do 49 of the most pitiful ranger push-ups you have ever seen. But I did squeak them out. And this is after you've just gone through two phases of Darby, which if you have, if you don't know this, Darby is the worst phase. It is miserable at bidding because the RIs are tougher, it seems. they just It's just a more difficult place to deal with and, and patrol. And so your body's broken down. In fact, I'm surprised you even have any upper body strength because I don't remember having any. And they said right then and right, if you want to be day one, you got to knock out 49 uh, push-ups which was, I'm assuming, 70% standard, which is, I think the minimum is 42, so 70% would be 49 or something like that. I don't remember, but I remember there was, I th- I think the numbers for passing the, the Ranger PT test was 49.69 and your five mile and 40 minutes and then six chin-ups. So if we could do the, the push-ups right then and there, then then we could stay. And I was the last one to go through. And I had actually been planning on going home. Like, one of my buddies from my squad who was also getting dropped, we had planned on going to the gym the next day. We were doing this. We were going to drink a ton of coffee because we hadn't been allowed any caffeine up to this point. Um, like, we had planned it out. We had actually started working out outside of the office where we were getting our board. We had started doing air squats and push-ups, and we were doing flutter kicks. We were like, hey, we're going to get our beach bodies back. We're going to be ready for the summer because it was June. And so not only did I come out of the far end of my board, and they're like, you're staying, which I had such mixed feelings because I was like, I don't know if I want to stay. I can't turn it down. But then we hit the summer exodus. So it was another three weeks before the next class would stay. So we were talking about the the ranger, what is it, the ranger? Best ranger. The best ranger competition, how they stay there for a long time. We had three weeks where it was skeleton crew and before we could even start again, which of course was a blessing in disguise because as you said, my body was was pretty bad shape. I had lost 10 pounds, which isn't a lot in comparison, but 10 pounds at... 146 pounds is is a significant amount. Um, I will say, though, as a 37-year-old female, I do not lose weight as fast as an 18-year-old or a, a 25-year-old male. So that is a positive, Is although I hate it when I'm trying to diet down for any sort of competition or just for life. I will say at Ranger School, that was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> That's awesome, because I know as you start to deteriorate, your fat just burns off, then you're burning muscle. Everybody smells like piss. It's just a, a poor experience. Um, so y- you go through this. This is cr- this is crazy. It's super motivating to me to hear this too. Um, you get to the point now, and you're going through, and you're getting to the end. And I know I remember, like I, I'm doing this book on mindset right now, and one of the chapters I have, and it, part of the experience of when I was doing the final road march in Florida phase to the water tower, where. I had there's a West Point grad who a mile into it twisted his ankle and quit right there on the spot. He said, I'm done. I need to get on the truck. And he jumped on the truck. And I was like thinking, like, the RA said, You're done. Get on the truck. Did you just quit? Yes, you're done. Get on the truck. I was like, 
this dude just quit. I don't know how many miles we have to walk, but this dude just quit after months of ranger school. And I can't believe this is happening. And then dude started quitting by the wayside. And I remember taking on like people's, you know, PRC 126 at the time, uh, 240 machine gun, extra guns, extra ammo. And it was just this big giant suck fest to the lights. And then we got to the end and obviously got counseled and told that we were go or no go. What was the experience like at the tail end of ranger school for you? Did anything happen prior to, to you finishing? And then what was that like when they actually told you that you were a go? Well, I, so it was the, my second round at, at Swamps. So I knew that either way, at the end of this, I was going home. And when they brought me in to tell me, I, I think they were more excited than I was. I, I don't know if they either wanted to get rid of me because they were just, I mean, there was a lot of publicity around this. Um, but just, I'm also a pain in the ass, like completely. So I had recycled for patrols. So it was, hey, R.I., I'm looking on Ranger Handbook page whatever, and this says this, but on page... At this point in time, I had gone through two Ranger handbooks. They're completely tabbed. I had colored pens so that because I had recycled, so all of Alpha Company notes were in blue pen. All of Bravo Company notes were in black pen. Charlie Company were in red pen. I mean, I had, I was a pain in the ass. Like, uh, they probably all wanted me to leave one way or the other. And, but I think everyone there knew that I really wanted to graduate because I wanted to graduate. By this time, there was no doubt that women could do it because Shay and Chris had already graduated. So everybody's attitude, including mine, had changed to, I need to get through this to change the world, to change the army. None of that existed anymore. Now, the fact that I was still there, the fact that I was still doing whatever it was I needed to do, the fact that I was still trying to help my buddies was a demonstration that I really wanted to be there for Lisa. And I would no longer wanted to be there to prove something or be the army. I, I wanted to be there because I wanted to be a better leader. And I think everyone saw it. So I think it was fun. My my teammates, my squad mates were so excited. Like I walked out finding out and I I think I was in shock. I didn't I didn't say anything. I mean, I'd been at that school for six months and my squad's like, oh my God, you got a no-go? Because I just was blank faced. And then I'm like, no, I'm a go. And then I just kept walking and I went and turned in my weapon or whatever it was the next thing I had to do. And they're all like, what the, like, what the hell's wrong with you? Like everybody else is like jumping around. I'm like, okay, well, something could still happen. You know, I could, I could not come back from pass on time or something could still happen. They're like, it's okay. You can be excited. And my squad had to tell me to be excited. And I finally, I finally got really excited about it. But I also, it was, um, so my swamp experience was was really bittersweet, and I got really close with with my last platoon actually because during the recycle at swamps, I had found out that my dad had terminal cancer, and um, we had actually lost a squad mate because his his father died, and um, and he had he came back and finished ranger school with the the next iteration, very impressive uh, young man, and I had another peer in his. I believe his mom died. Uh, another person in our platoon, his mom died while we were at Ranger School, and and he stayed. He did, he he was days out from the end, and he's like, "I'm gonna stay." And again, a very impressive, very young man who to stick through that. But I had found out that that my dad was terminally ill, and the whole platoon knew it. And 
we had gone through these other incidents. So our group got very tight. Um, And then upon graduation, because my dad was sick, he would have been able to come had I graduated one phase earlier. And he he didn't actually come. And we were going to be the first ever father-daughter ranger-tabbed team. So he went to ranger school in 1968, and here I am graduating from it in 2015. So I think my guys and my team were so much more excited for me at that moment than I was because I had all of this other stuff going through my head. I don't think I realized how awesome it was until I saw my two kids at Melvesti. Um, they got in trouble for climbing the ropes while waiting for me to come out of the gates, and and it was like – that's awesome. And and that was the first time where it was like, okay, I'm done. I've accomplished this. I've, I've, I've made it. Oh man. I get chills thinking about that moment too. Is it's just, uh, it's amazing too. And, and I didn't know that your, your father was a, a, a West in West point, but also a Ranger grad. That's impressive, especially in 68 when that school meant so much more because it was really directly related to what they were experiencing in Vietnam. It was like literally shaped based on that. And the, you know, Ranger, LERP Rangers uh, were doing uh, a heavy brunt of the workload in Vietnam uh, on the front line of combat. I mean, that's distinctively real combat. I mean, all the casualties that we took. And so your father unfortunately couldn't make it there. I'm assuming your husband pinned your Ranger tab on you. And then you get there and your tab's on your shoulder. And I remember this is... Because it's funny because I feel like we have the same memories because it hasn't changed much, right? right? And it's like pinning on that ranger tab. My mom pinned it on me. I, I was the first stanza in the Ranger Creed yelling it. So she even heard me during rehearsals. She heard my voice said, that's my boy, you know? And she put it on. She was super proud. You have that moment where it's being pinned on your shoulder. And this has to be a surreal moment. I mean, I imagine partially you're so damn fatigued because of six months of ranger school and just everything you've experienced. But it's a really defining moment, not only in history, uh, but in your own personal life. What, what were your feelings going through your head at that moment? And then what did you do right after you graduated ranger school? My ranger school graduation was really disappointing for me. Um, the media. I, I had really hoped, you know, Chris and Shay had graduated. I had hoped that the media died down. It was wonderful. The West Point Women's uh, Organization. Now, I don't even know if it existed back then. We have it now. But there there was West Point Women. There was classmates from my my West Point class. My Sergeant Major came. My stepmom's brother came. Like, these people that I didn't know were my supporters, or I knew, but I didn't think they were serious enough to come to Fort Benning, showed up, and that was amazing. But the media was there, and it was really hard for me because there were an entire class of people having that same surreal moment, but all eyes were on me. And it didn't make me feel like the bell of the ball. It made me feel like I was stealing the glory and the, the, the excitement from the other ranger school students. So what I ended up doing is anything I, I had left back in the barracks, I just threw away, and I never, ever actually went back to the barracks. So from graduation, I just disappeared because I didn't, I didn't say goodbye to anybody. I didn't do any of that because it, there was just too much attention. But, you know, one of my favorite moments is um, 
I had a, a laminated picture of my kids in my pocket that I had carried, and it was them wearing just superhero clothes because they always do because they're little. And uh, and it was a little note that my son had stuck in in my bags before I had went away to ranger school that said every word is spelled wrong practically, so it's hard to read. But it says, um, Mom, I love you. To be awesome, you have to do awesome things. Love, Zach. And I had those things in my pocket, and I got to show my kids that, hey, this was with me the last six months. Because when I would call home for three minutes at a time, I wasn't talking to my kids because that's too hard on them. Like, we couldn't connect and disconnect once every three weeks. Uh, so that was a pretty pretty amazing moment for me. And then the other moment was Chris and Shay were both there. And at some point in time, the RIs actually pushed back the crowd, and Chris and Shay come running at me. And it it literally tears me up to think of this moment because they were young. And, I mean, they're not young, young. They're, they're grown women. They're very, very competent, amazing, accomplished women. But, you know, we talked about stuff. We were together for a really long time. And we talked about relationships. And I was at such a different position at life. And so I could, I could say, hey, I could be a big sister. And they came running at me and I yelled, babies and I scooped both of them up you know big big bear hugs and and it was actually caught in a picture and every time I see that picture I'm like oh my god is somebody cutting onions in here like that was one of those moments like my family is cool but it's this family that 20 years from now I'm still gonna run into them and you know yell at them for something stupid they said or you know that one moment when they did something or be just ecstatic and and the, that relationship, and they were able to be there for my graduation. So I think that was one of those those key moments at graduation where I'll hold that in my mind forever as a treasure. That's amazing. What's Give me the final statistics on what you started with as a class, as women, and then what you winded up uh, finishing with. So 19 women started that first class. Um, obviously, I said Chris and Shay graduated before I did, but out of the 19, three of us ultimately graduated that being said, that was 2015. Now in 2019, we're in the mid to high 30s to include NCOs because um, it was only officers for a long time who had graduated. And, and now we just had our first Air Force female graduate. Wow. That's, a, that's really impressive. And then how, how do you think the, the culture has changed with you guys going to Ranger School? Because, you know, I remember this first happened, right? And I, I remember doing a post. Uh, it was a black female that I used to uh, operate with. She was fluent in Arabic, so she spoke Arabic, and we went out and did combat counterterrorism operations together, but she was one of our female engagement. Uh, actually, she wasn't. She was an interpreter, but we made her a female engagement, and she was doing call-outs with us. She was doing hits with us, DA hits, and I remember back in that day, it, I looked at things differently with, with women. I mean, this is early Iraq, but I remember thinking differently. Do you think the Army has changed? Do you think you guys going through school and now with more graduates as it continues to happen, more leaders and leadership positions, do you think the culture has changed for the better at all when it comes to women? I remember back in 1996 being frustrated with the segregated PT standards for men and women. I was also frustrated with the, the age norming. Background, 
it should be based on job. If you're in the National Guard, you could have a 25-year-old. You could have a 34-year-old, I think, is the oldest. But you could have a 34-year-old brand-new private who needs to pass a PT test with a completely different standard than an 18-year-old private with the same MOS. But they're expected to do the same job. And as you know, an 11 Bravo, that job is very physical. And that was always something very frustrating to me. The Army is going to the Army Combat Fitness Test. Now, there's lots of doubters. There's lots of people who are angry about it. There's lots of people who are opinionated about it one way or the other. But the mere thought that the Army is looking at doing a PT test that has no gender and no age norming and has different bars for passing based on whether you're combat service support, combat support, or combat arms shows me that whether we were the catalyst or whether we were the actual cause, somewhere in there, the Army has completely changed from 1996 to 2019 in a really good way where we realize that a person's capabilities are much more critical than their adjectives. Wow. I, I didn't even realize that. I, I heard we're doing a special operations prep course um, next month where we prepare men, and I've had women that go to this as well, um, and we're implementing that that change for, to prepare them for the uh, changes that are happening in the military. Um, what are you doing now and how has your mindset changed in that experience that you took from Rainier school and how are you adjusting that as a leader to prepare your soldiers for war? So what I'm doing now is and in the reserve, I am a brigade XO for an engineer brigade out of Bryan, Texas. Uh, and then on my civilian side, I am the director of civil engineering for an engineering firm out of New Braunfels, Texas. Uh, so MS Engineering. But um, how how this has changed me, um, you know that that moment of realizing how my actions influenced people. Not only, hey, I say something to you, Mike, and you're like, oh, that's cool, and you might ponder it at some point in time in the future. But how a leader's behavior or even a peer's behavior can completely change how someone in the military looks at someone else. I think that has been the biggest change from from the school is as a leader now, I try to look, I've got a sticky on my computer, or I used to, uh, and it says, uh, speak to people the way they need to be spoken to. And it's kind of the idea of I get naysayers, I get people online, and they'll say terrible things about me. And if I look on their profile, and I look at them, and they're a parent, or they're married, or they're, they're in certain jobs, or I, I see something in there where I can connect with them somehow. Anyway, oh, they do jujitsu? Okay, I will communicate with them, I will try to text them, I will try to talk to them outside of a thread. And and connect and say, hey, listen, what questions do you really have? Why do you really feel like this? And I went from this Patton-esque, hey, you can lead by being a tough, hard leader and you should, you should lead the group to more of a, that's not the army we have anymore. We have these individual thinkers, people who question everything. The millennials are different than Gen X's, which is different than Gen Y's, which is, you know, we're all very different. And the new generation needs to see those individual influencers. So I went from wanting to be a, a team or a group leader managing organization to 
I want to manage each person. I want individual touches. I want to see how I can positively influence those around me, which also impacts how I phrase things. Yes, I can tell you to shut the hell up. Or I can say, hey, man, you really realize what a negative impact your words have. Exact same thing, but completely different way that it can be received. I guess I guess that's how I've I've changed in the last five years. Four is years. is that because I mean is there a, a tie in because you know you start in Ranger School you start to realize what it takes to influence people at their core right and and it's not it's not all the same right that everybody's not uh, uh, structured with the same incentives they don't operate the same and I remember the challenges faced with managing different personalities to influence them when people are tired and hungry. Mm-hmm. Some people are incentivized by food. Others are incentivized by rest, et cetera. And so now you kind of understand because you've, you've, you've been there at the bottom, right, mm-hmm. and had to operate at the highest level possible at the bottom. Um, is that kind of what gave you that perspective on dealing with your soldiers now? And and transitioning out of that, what advice would you have for your own soldiers, men and women, who wanted to attend Ranger School? So I think the Ranger School influence definitely had a, a big impact. But one of the other things is combining that with being a reserve officer. So when I go home after a weekend of drill or training, I'm no longer around a bunch of people who fitness is part of their job, they're alphas, they, they want to be part of this big organization, I might be around people who are equally motivated, but they're introverts, or they don't really care about fitness, or they don't care about things that I care about, or maybe they're not even, maybe they're not even from the US, you know, and and all those things that it's a little bit easier to lead soldiers, even when they're different, and have different motivators, because there's a some sort of common thread. But when you're outside of that world, and you go back to the civilian world, there's there's a lot of threads, and none of them seem to tie together. So combining those two worlds was was really good for me, and and especially breaking it down to the lowest level. Um, being so close with E threes and E fours, which is something again as an O four I didn't do much of, forced me to when I got back to my civilian world remember that. It's not all about the management. It's also about that individual guy who's the hourly employee who's busting his hump in the sun for 60 hours a week and and doing whatever he can. So communicating with him the same way I did with my peers at Ranger School was a direct tie. And and so I think the combination of the two has built my new, um, my current leadership philosophy. And I believe the next question was... The advice for somebody who, like, even if your own soldiers were going to attend Ranger School, what advice would you have for them that wanted to go? With regards to Ranger School and with regards to any challenge you face in life, you have to be all in. The people who fail Ranger School are the people who, at some point in time, had quit in them. Now, you know, you'll hear it said, everybody thinks about quitting at some point in time. Thinking about quitting but is different than letting quit in. And, and what I mean by that is if you start seriously contemplating, hey, I'm going to go home, I'm going to see my kids, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to see my girlfriend, or I'm going to drive my car, or I get my cell phone back. When you start thinking of the benefits that are on the other side of the table, rather than being focused on your goal, you will give up on your goal. And, and Ranger School is 
a, ver- a, a steroids version of that. But any goal you have, you have to be all in. And my biggest advice to anyone is to figure out your why and stick with it. You got to hold it in your back pocket, even if it is as simple as I cut my hair for this shit. Oh, I love that. I, I love that. Model. That should be on a t-shirt right there. Um, so we had talked about mindset and we actually expressed the same interest in the books that you guys know, cause you listen to this podcast. There's two real big books that I always recommend Malcolm Gladwell's outliers and then uh, with winning in mind. And it's interesting that we, you know, we talked about those books and how, uh, we believe in those books and the messaging and what they're saying. You are doing speaking engagements where, you know, you motivate me, and it's hard to motivate me. Like, there's, it's rare. People know me. No, it's very hard to, to motivate me, but you get me motivated. And um, when you're doing these type of speaking engagements, you're talking about mindset and all these different things. What's really your message? Because I didn't even think about this until you said it, but I teach people from lessons from Rainer School from 20 years ago. And now here I am, and you're using the same application and small unit tactics and leadership in the worst conditions to apply it to your job and role. So it's so beneficial in life. And I imagine that you have a lot to say, obviously, when it comes to uh, spreading the good news, whether a leader in the military or a leader in the corporate or engineering world. When you do these speaking engagements, what is the message that you communicate and like, what do people want to hear? So other than what we've already talked about, um, a lot of times I'll say delete the adjective. So for me, one of my issues, the, how the chip grew on my shoulder was somebody would say, oh, you're really strong for a woman or you look good for your age. I don't want to be a good female soldier. I just want to be a good soldier. So if, if I don't cut it under that standard, I don't want recognition. Like, I don't want Best Female Soldier of the Quarter Award. That's not an award to me. That means I can't cut it with the males. So I talk a lot about team building, and one of the ways to build an effective team is to delete the adjective. Now, we need to celebrate our differences. Differences do add value, but we can't focus on them. So when you're talking about mindset, so you have to reverse that coin. I also can't look at myself as any minority group. If, if I look at somebody hiring me, they could get benefits for me being a veteran. They could get benefits for me being a female in a male in- industry. These are, these are tracked minority groups. Well, I don't, I don't want to take that into a room with me, into an interview with me. I have to want to hold myself accountable based on the highest standard as well. Um, so that's one of the big things I talk about. And the other thing, of course, is never letting quit in. I love that. I, I, you need to write a book and you need to do a lot of speaking engagements and you just need to, man, it's crazy because there's so many things that people could learn. And it, what's, what's really interesting is I interview men and women for, uh, for this podcast. Also, obviously from the military. And when I, when I talk to you, I don't think like, you're amazing because you're a woman. I don't go, well, you're an amazing woman. Inside of my head, I go, you're an amazing leader, right? You're an amazing soldier. And what people don't understand, and I think this is an adage more from my experience in special operations because we operate in these small teams. And so we're stripped down very easily into 
the primal needs of the unit and organization. Food, sleep, beans and bullets, right? And, and so when I talk to you, it's like, I want more people to listen to you. Like I, I do, I, I think it's really important. You know, from my own, my own kids to, you know, the next generation to the millennials who are thinking about uh, joining the service. Do you have any, because I know you're not a big, I talk to you about social media, you're not a big marketeer for yourself, which we'll get better at that. I'll help you with that. Um, but is, is there any way, like, do you have any platforms, do you have any messaging uh, capabilities, any DM capabilities of, be, of people who are literally in my uh, demographic, in my market of people who ask me advice all the time that could kind of ask you these things or ask you these questions or hear your message? Is there any platforms? So one of the main reasons I started, I have a Facebook page that's Facebook or Lisa Jaster, delete the adjective. And literally I started that and give it out. And anyone who writes me a message, I answer every single one of them, even when it's hey, uh, I responded to this fake account. Okay, well, that's not me. Please report them. Every single one I respond to. Um, when I, so I speak for leading authorities. And when I go out on those speeches, and even when I do speeches pro bono, I, I try to give out my information as much as possible. But I, I want people to reach out to me. I want that one-on-one. -on -one. one of the things I struggle with with regards to writing a book is again, that leadership style of a blast out message, when I am finding that I make so much headway with conversations like this, one-on-one, -on -one, sitting with someone, and, and my husband has a great way of saying this, and he will tell people, listen, I know, I know you don't believe women can do this, but you haven't met a Lisa Jaster. And when people meet Alisa Jaster or a Shay or a Chris or any of the women that you talked about, um, some of these women that did the CSTs or any group of people that has biases towards them for one reason or another, and you meet them and you meet that one person, your whole life changes. So what I struggle with is I'm very, very set on this individual communication and I, I wish I had something better and I will, I'll get better at it. But I put out my Instagram and I put out my my delete the adjective Facebook page specifically because I want people to ask me questions because I will answer them and I will help you find the right person. If you're looking to go to ranger school as a male, female, transgender, anybody, I'm, I can find you somebody that can help you get trained up, who knows the, the latest tactics. I mean, it's been four years. I can tell you, I can hook you up with maybe a trainer in the area. And, and I guess social media is the best way to reach out to me. Yeah, it's great. I, I'm going to have all your links for your social media at the bottom of this, in the notes of this podcast, so people can link it. And we'll, we'll make sure we plug it all over the place. Uh, because I think, it, uh, you know, people, the younger generation, especially are looking for mentors. I mean, I see that all the time. I, I give people advice and convince them in a day to go join the army. And I'm like, I can't believe you just did that. But it, they just need guidance, right? They just need help. And so we'll, we'll do that, all that as well. And I know, lastly, that there was some talk about um, politics, potentially, right? And so I'm a very good judge of character. It's just something that's been ingrained in me from my mother. I've done it as a leader throughout the military and been successful at it. And so I get the impression that you're capable of leading, but also making smart and sound decisions in policy. And, you know, we've discussed, we had conversations about Benghazi and Libya and stuff like that. And the 
biggest breakdown that I've seen between uh, the intelligence that drives our operations is the policymakers that determine uh, what objectives that we're going to tackle. And whether it's in Congress or in the Senate or whatever it may be, is that something on your radar? I mean, it should be. I'm telling you now, like on the podcast, like I hope that's something that you're thinking about because that kind of leadership, um, not only do I think it's, uh, you know, some people are bor- born with the traits, but you have to learn that through experience. And it seems like you have a myriad of experience. Is that something that you're ever going to think about doing? No pressure. Um, yeah, I, I'm definitely interested in being more politically active. Um, what that looks like right now, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, I do have two young kids that are amazing and they deserve the attention that I can give them. So what I plan on doing for the next few years at least is is to be on the peripheral and, and support those smart policy changes. Um, there's definitely a lot we can do. Uh, America's amazing and I love it and I want to make it help make it better. And I feel like Part of being a soldier is a lifetime of dedication to the nation, which won't stop when I take off my uniform. But as long as I'm still a reservist and as long as my kids are young, I'll, I'll, be, on, I'll be on the sidelines. But eventually I might raise my hand and ask to be put into the game. That'd be amazing. Just put me on the team. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> Some kind of support role, server support, I'll be there. I'll help you out. Um, Lisa, I want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're an inspiration. Um, it, as it's hard to impress an SF sort major, right? <laughs> but for me, it's. I mean, I am super impressed with you. I'm so excited to get the message out and communicate about your message. I love everything that you're doing and everything that you're you're talking about. The the greatest thing about everything that you said is it comes from a positive place, and you don't get that today in society because most people uh, use these identity politics or this virtue signaling. And they come from a negative place or a dark place. And the fact that you're doing it by spreading light and a positive message is amazing. I'm proud of you as an American, as a soldier, as, as a human being who's put themselves and sacrificed all their time, you and both your husband, and done so much for our country and continue to do it. One of the best podcasts ever. Thanks, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. 